0: Well, hello everybody, and welcome to this special edition of the Salty Pastor. If you are a longtime listener, you'll know that a while back we did an entire series on Upstream, and since then we have been working with another organization that I've been involved with called Upstream that really focuses on how to help children and families get the most out of their educational options. With that in mind, we were able to speak with a special guest, Corey DeAngelis, which is the leading researcher in Washington, D.C., on the school system and how to best serve your child and how to make the best choices for your child. So I want to share this interview with him to all of the salty pastor listeners because I think you will find it valuable. Let's begin. Well, hello everyone, and welcome to upstream strategies, Inc. We are an organization dedicated to helping parents and families discover, find, and employ educational opportunities for their children. We are particularly focused on any and all research that puts the child at the center of the educational process and makes decisions on what is best for them and supporting the parents in regards to this outcome, we have a special guest today. It is Corey DeAngelis, national director of research at the American Federation for children, executive director at educational freedom Institute, senior fellow at reason foundation and adjunct fellow at the Cato Institute. Let's welcome him to our podcast today. Welcome.
1: Hey, thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, it's great. You are one popular person, man. You've been on Fox news. You've been doing interviews. You've got research being published in national, uh, media outlets. Wow. You've got quite the resume.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really got into this with, uh, with research. I did my PhD at the university of Arkansas where I mostly studied school choice programs. My first study being the effects of the Milwaukee private school choice program on crime reduction, which was, I would say, really interesting because a lot of people haven't really looked into these non-test score type of outcomes, these uh, character development effects of school choice. And more recently, I think, I've been changing the conversation from school choice towards the idea of funding students as opposed to systems. Um, And I think that's been very helpful in the national debate because uh, school choice might not mean a lot to a lot of people if if they don't really understand what the policy looks like. But when you talk about funding students directly, it's pretty transparent. Uh, It's the idea that the education funding should follow the child to wherever they're getting an education, whether that's the public school or a private school or another type of homeschooling setup.
0: Yeah, so it's really child centered, which is aligns with the goal and mission of our organization or our foundation as well. So I've got a question for you uh, that I know you could really speak to in your expertise and that is all research seems to point to parental involvement as the top variable in good educational outcomes. So where do you see. The, the lack of school choice, I term it as a government monopoly on mm-hmm. education, where it undermines parents, it alienates them, it disengages them in the decision making process and oversight of their children's education.
1: Yeah, so I would argue school choice improves the amount of uh, parental involvement in education. And we actually do have a study on this. You, you, pro- you don't really need a study to, <laughs> to, to realize that, well, when you give families more power in their kids' education, well, one, by definition, they're going to be more involved with their child's education. But then they'll also have a stronger incentive to seek out information about their kids' education provider if they know that they have the means to make that choice uh, so school choice can empower parents to do so there's actually a study i think it was published in 2017 by a, a couple of cornell researchers and they found that when school choice programs were implemented in a location well the the search uh, activity online for private education options uh skyrocketed mm-hmm. and that doesn't take a rocket science right rocket science figure it out but um it's interesting that we do have some data on on that uh type of outcome uh, parental involvement in education but as we've seen for decades and in particular over the past couple of years the teachers unions have fought as hard as possible against any change to the status quo you correctly refer to the status quo education system as a monopoly if you Want Another option for your kid, if your residentially assigned, government-run school doesn't work, there's high transaction costs associated with getting a better product. You have to, one, you can pay out of pocket to cover private school tuition and fees. You're essentially paying twice, once through the tax system, and then again for, for a school you're not using, and then again out of pocket for private school tuition and fees. That's uh, totally ridiculous. Or you can pay to change houses, which is a, total pain in the butt even if you had the money to do so just imagine if your restaurant that that is nearby your house just stopped working for you for whatever reason maybe they just got a new chef and it didn't work out and you wanted to shop at another restaurant or even another grocery store and you had to move houses in order to exercise a different choice. That wouldn't make any sense. It would mean that the grocery store and restaurant that you're assigned to would have zero incentive to do a good job. And we see that same problem with the traditional school system all across the country right now. We saw it more never when the public schools starting in 2020 were fighting to keep their doors closed, whereas the private schools in most places were fighting to keep their doors open and the difference there was one of incentives that one of those sectors receives children's education dollars regardless of whether they even open their doors for business and in fact, it was even worse than that. They were able to lobby to the government, hold children's education hostage in order to secure multiple multi-billion dollar ransom payments from the federal government. So the incentives are completely upside down in the traditional system. The only way that will ever fix that is to attach the money to the child and to let the families decide public or private school, whatever's best for their kid. That would provide true bottom-up accountability for all schools to do the right thing for kids.
0: So just clarification and make sure I'm getting this right. uh, And you can speak into it is that basically when the school system shut down due to COVID, they not only received the, uh, funds from property taxes and the existing tax structure. They also got windfalls of money from COVID relief from the federal government. And yet all of that money from the tax base, uh, locally and property taxes and all that money from the federal government, it didn't go to the students at all because the students were still locked out of their schools. So it went somewhere. Where did it go?
1: it went to the closed
0: school buildings
1: and the teachers unions loved that because they understood that they could keep their benefits the same in terms of job security and pay Mm. while reducing their costs associated with commuting to work with having to provide in-person services, uh, and any other costs associated with going back into the buildings. And look, I want to be clear. I don't blame the, the employees in the traditional system for having a good setup where 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 they're in a system that uh, uh, provides them with the same amount of benefits regardless of whether they return to work, I, I don't. You know, you can't really blame the people in the system. It's the problem with the system itself. Yes, and I think this kind of turned a light bulb on in the heads of so many parents over the past couple of years. If their grocery store, for whatever reason, decided not to reopen, well, at least they could take their their funding for groceries elsewhere. If their neighborhood Safeway or Walmart didn't reopen for whatever reason, they could say, okay, I'm gonna take this money to Trader Joe's or to another Walmart or to another Safeway. The funding would follow the decision of the family. And that's true even if we're talking about taxpayer funded initiatives. We have food stamps, for example. The food stamp funding doesn't go straight to 1 billion regardless of how well it does or regardless of the choice of the family or regardless of whether it opens, the funding goes to the family and they could choose Walmart, Safeway, Trader Joe's or any other provider. Mm -hmm. And we do the same thing with higher education with Pell Grants. Pell Grant funding goes to the student. You can pick the public or community college if you want, but you could also go to a private religious or non-religious university. We do the same thing with pre-K programs. We have the Federal Head Start program, for example. The money doesn't go straight to a residentially assigned government-run provider or pre-K. Instead, it goes to the family and they could choose private religious or non-religious providers of pre-K services. And all I'm arguing with school choice and most other advocates would similarly argue that we apply that same concept to the in-between years of K-12 education to fund the people as opposed to the buildings.
0: So it's kind of like doing what we're already doing.
1: Right. And, and you can apply this concept in every industry. You can mm-hmm. think about Medicaid dollars. We don't tell families using Medicaid that they must spend the money at a Particular government-run hospital. You could take the Medicaid dollars to a religiously affiliated private hospital if you want. We could we do the same thing with Section 8 housing vouchers. You don't have to use it for government housing. You can take the funding to a any uh, 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 provider of housing of your choosing that can be that's privately provided, obviously. And uh, you know, I'm not arguing that anything about whether any of these other programs are good or bad. All I'm arguing is that. If we're going to spend the money, it might as well go to people as opposed to the buildings, just like we do with all these other things. And what's interesting is like a lot of the same people who support all of these other initiatives that fund people as opposed to buildings with higher education, pre-K and everything else. They get all up in arms about it only when it comes to K through 12 education. And that raises an important question. Why would that be? Why would you support all of these other things? but not funding people directly when it comes to K through 12 education. Well, the answer is pretty obvious for most for for you and I is that there's a difference in power dynamics. That mm-hmm. choice is the norm for everything else, but choice threatens an entrenched special interest only when it comes to K through 12 education. And so of course, they fight as hard as possible against any change to the status quo and they fight against parental rights in education every step of the way. Uh, But it doesn't mean that it should be that way. And, you know, they only have one argument that they put forward every single time. Well, one one thing they'll say is public money for public schools. And it's like, well, there's no such thing as public money. First of all, it's taxpayer money that is taken from private hands. Uh, But secondly, we we have public Taxpayer funding going to private institutions for all of these other things that you support. Why are you only talking about public this Mm -hmm. public that when it comes to K through 12 education? Well, it's because it it never had anything to do with logic. It's always had a lot to do with with um, power dynamics and they'll argue that this is stealing money from the public schools but the money doesn't belong to the buildings. It doesn't belong to the public or private schools. The money is meant for educating the child, not for propping up and protecting a particular institution, whether it's public or private. No one would say that allowing families to choose where their food stamp dollars go steals money from Walmart. That would be absolutely ridiculous for anyone to say that because we all understand that that funding and for every other program belongs to the families or at least it's meant for the families and they should have a choice in the matter. Let's Mm -hmm. do the same thing for K through 12 education. And one more response to this ridiculous argument is, first of all, it doesn't belong to you, it belongs to the kids and the families. Second is, well, why would that happen? It's more of a rhetorical question. Why would giving families a choice defund the public schools if they're doing a good job? Well, the reality is the people repeating this argument don't have confidence in their product. They're essentially admitting that they understand that thousands, if not millions of families would choose something else when given the option. That's an argument for school choice, not Not against it.
0: Well, what's one of the things that's interesting. You said earlier is that, uh, people who are in the system, uh, You don't blame them. You know, my wife was an educator. She was a high school math teacher. My daughter-in-law is an educator in the local high school. All my children went to public schools. My last child is still in public school. We know a ton of teachers and administrators who are top-notch people, but it seems they are frustrated. They uh, are underpaid. They are overwhelmed with the workload and the bureaucracy. How would school choice help these people that are in the system uh, so that we can give them a vision for wanting change? Yeah.
1: So competition in the market for goods and services is obviously good for families, students, and customers, but competition in the labor market is similarly good for employees. In the current K through 12 education system, there's essentially something called a monopsony in the labor market. You have one big employer, which is the government. And if you want to go into K 12 education to teach, you don't have a lot of private sector employers to choose from. And so teachers don't have a lot of choice in the current system. If you fund students directly and you advance school choice, Families will have more of a choice, which will give their employers stronger incentives to listen to them, whether it comes in, in terms of higher salaries or more autonomy. And we, we see that often in the private sector where teachers don't have to deal with as much of the red tape and bureaucracy that you see in the government-run school system. And there's also another way in which this, this helps teachers uh, in the public and private schools is that the current government-run school system is a monopoly that doesn't have strong incentives to put the resources towards the most important educational resource in the school which happens to be the teacher and so what we see over time is more Mm. and more of the funding being thrown at the failing system but not making its way into the classroom it goes towards administrative bloat and just putting more people into the buildings which means less money for individual teachers who are already doing a good job in the system. For example, Kennesaw State University professor, Ben Scaffidy, he's an economist over there, looked at the data nationwide between 1992 and 2014, and he pointed out that nationwide per pupil education expenditures in the government run school system actually increased by 27% after adjusting for inflation, but teacher salaries over the same period actually dropped in real terms by 2%. Oh. So we're putting more money into the system teachers are complaining uh, uh, pretty often about how they had to dig into their pockets to pay for supplies each and every year and i actually feel kind of bad for them but the problem isn't with their competition in terms of private and charter schools the problem is that their employer doesn't have the right incentives to do the right thing with the additional funding the teachers union bosses which are not the same thing as teachers union teachers union members on the ground have an incentive just to put more people into the buildings. I'm thinking of Randy Weingarten, for example, from the American Federation of Teachers, who makes over $560,000 a year. Their incentive is to put more people into the buildings because that means more dues-paying members and a larger voting block. But that means less money uh, left over to go towards the individual teacher salaries. Mm. And then again, the red tape is a huge problem. And there's actually five studies that exists on the topic that I've outlined at the Washington Examiner in a post called School Choice Benefits Teachers 2. All five of these studies that I've found on the topic find that private and charter school competition leads to higher teacher salaries in the public schools too. Mm-hmm. And again, that's because it gives their employers an incentive to put that money towards the important educational resource, the teacher, because they have an incentive to listen to the customers who are the families and the families are gonna choose schools that are doing a good job. What better way to allocate the resources than towards the classroom and the teachers?
0: Yeah. So, so it's a it. win
1: win situation, uh, it, it benefits teachers, families. It just doesn't benefit the teachers union bosses like Randy Weingarten and the superintendents.
0: Yeah, and I hope I hope that teachers who are listening to this, I know we have a lot of teachers that listen to uh, various podcasts that I do and share it with other teachers and administrators, is that they really start to think is that the issue isn't necessarily the teacher, what it is is it's the bureaucracy of a monopoly because I've spoken with uh, my audience on numerous occasions is that there's a philosophy of bureaucracy. And people are not aware of that And there's certain systems that, uh, just by their very nature, their entire incentive structure is not to do what's best for in this particular case, children and what educates children. So the mission, it's not mission creep. It's antithetical to the mission of educating children.
1: Yeah, and what's really crazy about all of this is that the bureaucracy actually gets to keep a lot of the money. And this usually gets gets lost in the conversation about school choice because they 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 throw their hands up in the air and the bureaucracy likes to say, oh, this is gonna just defund and destroy our schools. Um I've already responded to that in a couple of ways. You know, yes. that's not your money in the first place. To uh, why would that happen if you're doing a good job? You're you're admitting that you're a failure. Uh that's That's not the argument you want to make. But then three, and most people don't realize this, is that the government-run schools nationwide spend about $15,000, $16,000 per student, according to the 2019 Census Bureau numbers. It's probably a lot higher now because of the bailouts that started in March of 2020 for supposed COVID relief, when a lot of the money hasn't even been spent yet. And a lot of it wasn't even used for reopening schools safely. In fact, in the Senate, in the US Senate, there was a an amendment that was put forward to try to make that funding based on actually reopening the schools. Like let's make it contingent upon actually reopening the schools if, we're, if it's about COVID uh, relief and safely reopening schools. That uh, amendment actually failed on a 50-50 partisan vote. And so the money didn't even have to be spent uh, uh, it didn't have to be, it, the schools didn't have to open in order for them to receive the COVID, uh, relief money. Uh, but the third part that, yeah, the third response I want to say to this, you know, you're, you're destroying our schools and, um, you're, you're taking our funding is that these programs typically tend to be only about half of the total funding following the child. It's usually mm-hmm. the state portion of the funding following the child, which on average is nationwide about half. So let's say seven or 8,000 of that 15, sixteen thousand well what does that mean for the public schools they get to keep the local and the federal funding so on a per pupil basis they actually end up with higher revenues and expenditures per student just mm. imagine if you stopped shopping at walmart for whatever reason and you started shopping at trader joe's for whatever reason and walmart got to keep half your grocery bill and funding in perpetuity that would be a good deal for walmart it wouldn't make yeah. a lot of sense but i would argue it's Similarly, a good deal for the public schools that they get to keep tons of the funding, thousands of dollars each year for students they are no longer educating.
0: That is really a fascinating principle. It's it, When you kind of dig into it and you apply logic to the system, it's really quite amazing what you can do. Uh, one of the things, you know, we've talked about incentives over and over and over again. And my, my contention is that... The groups that are driving the public education system or the government monopoly right now are our teachers, unions, state legislatures, the federal department of education and local sp- school boards. So you basically have four groups that are making decisions, but what I have failed to see And is if any of these organizations or groups have incentives to put the child first, is the research Mm -hmm. shows that their incentive structure, it's not what they say they want, but their actual incentives show that, well, putting children first is really not in their best interest.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's right. Uh, If you you think about the incentive structure at play with all these groups, it's they currently have a monopoly. They get your money no matter what. And so, of course, they're going to fight against any change to the status quo. And and we see that play out every single time a school choice bill is introduced that would try to empower parents. You see the normal groups, the teachers' unions, the superintendents' unions, the school boards associations, all fighting to keep your kids' education dollars in their institutions. The problem is they get this idea of property completely backwards. They think that your kids' education dollars belong to them but mm-hmm. the reality is the money's meant for your child and once you can point that out it's really hard for them to argue with this uh, that's that's why i've tried to change the conversation to saying that instead of school choice we should fund students not mm-hmm. systems if you want to argue with that they're all of a sudden on defense trying to argue why we should fund the system and not the student mm-hmm. And if we center all of the conversations on the student, it becomes very obvious that they are more concerned about protecting their institutions instead of doing what's best for the kid. Cause otherwise they would just let the kid choose and the families choose, and they'd be confident in their product that they would do if they were doing a great job for the families. Uh, so we see that happen everywhere. And, uh, as, as far as, one, one thing, piece of research I wanted to point out is that you know the, the claim is that their institutions are gonna crumble because they have to change their game. But the reality is the public schools do a good job when there is competition. School choice is a rising tide that lifts all boats. So there have been 27 studies on this topic. 25 of 27 studies, the vast majority of the studies, find statistically significant positive effects of private school choice competition on the outcomes in the public school system. Mm. So this doesn't destroy public schools. It makes them better. I have confidence that the public schools will up their game in response to competition. And if you care about any data at all, the overwhelming preponderance of the evidence, 25 of 27 studies finds that 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 theory uh, has merit, that competition leads to better outcomes in every industry, including K to 12
0: education. Mm, That's fascinating. Now, one of the things is the mechanics of this. Sometimes people have talked about vouchers, but the something that's happening right now across the nation is states are passing these ESAs. Could you uh, talk about that just real quick and and bring us up to speed? What is an ESA and how is it different than maybe a voucher?
1: yeah so for listeners the idea of the voucher should be something you're kind of familiar with but if not the basic idea is that the money that would have followed your child to their residentially assigned government-run school you could still take it there if you want if you like your public school you can keep your public school but if not for whatever reason half of that funding typically the state portion of the funding would follow the child in the form of the voucher where you could take it to a private school to pay for tuition and fees Mm -hmm. pretty basic the funding follows the decision of the individual family whether that's the government-run school or if not you can opt out and take that funding in the form of a voucher to a private school the education savings account uh, method is pretty similar But it's literally that funding that would have went to the government school. Again, you can still choose that with the ESA. The funding would instead of being in the form of a voucher, you could put it into an education savings account that is directed by the family for the child. You could still say, I'm going to take that funding and spend it on private school tuition and fees like a voucher. But you could also take the funding to any other approved education provider. You could use it for a micro school, a pandemic pod, which is essentially uh, a setup where five to 10 children get together in a household to economize on the process of homeschooling. We saw a lot of these sprout up uh, starting in March of 2020. You could use the funding for home-based education curriculum or other instructional materials. You can use the funding for private tutoring. So it's like a voucher in that you can use it for private school tuition and fees, but it's more than a voucher and that you can use it for any approved education expenditure. It doesn't have to be a brick and mortar private school, but you still have that option with the education savings account.
0: How many states have been enacting these?
1: Yeah. So the bills that I've seen flying around state legislators, legislatures recently in particular have been more education, savings account focused as opposed to voucher focused. Uh, I think from what I've last seen this year in 2022, about 34, states had bills uh at least introduced this year to fund students as opposed to systems and the vast majority of those states had education savings accounts that were proposed mm. and the number of states that have these types of programs actually doubled in 2021 we're calling 2021 the year of school choice on a national level at least because of such huge momentum in the number of and in, in, in one the support for school choice according to polling and then also the legislative victories in 2021 were phenomenal uh uh mostly because the teachers unions overplayed their hand i mean they were they were pushing to keep the schools closed families started to wake up with remote learning seeing what the heck was going on in the classroom started to see that there was another dimension of school quality that they weren't uh that they weren't as familiar with which is more th- you know schools are just way more than just standardized tests math and reading scores they're also about values and families wanting their kids to be raised in, in a certain way so that also helped uh elevate the case for school choice and again in 2021 the number of states that expanded or enacted school choice policies was about 19 states so huge victories and the number of states with these education savings account programs doubled from five states to 10 states. Mm. And Michigan also passed an education savings account program, but it was vetoed by their governor. So it would have been 11 states. But the, the good news in Michigan is that you can override a governor's veto just by getting a few hundred thousand signatures. It doesn't even have to go to the ballot. You just do a signature gathering initiative. So I have... Um, I have, I have I'm optimistic that Michigan will be the 11th state with an education savings account program once they finish gathering signatures and uh, Idaho had a push this year in, in 2022 as well. Um, there was a, a minor victory with with um, kind of these uh, innovative classrooms micro grants essentially, Microgrants, you, yeah yeah but but the education savings account proposal the better proposal actually, uh, did not make it out of the committee, um, but there's going to be renewed push uh, yeah, probably it's next seen, year as yeah.
0: well. Now, uh, is there, in, in this movement, you're talking about a lot of momentum, and it's really good for kids, it's great for engaging parents, and it's good for people who are in the the uh, monopoly of education right now, it's good for teachers. It's really good for them. What kind of books or materials would you, uh, encourage my audience to investigate or look or steps that they could take if they want to find out more how they could be involved, uh, or, uh, resources that might benefit them in this process.
1: Yeah, so I obviously want to point out that uh, you should check out my co-edited volume uh, at the Cato Institute with Neil McCluskey. It's called School Choice Myths, Setting the Record Straight on Education Freedom. You can find it at Amazon. You can find it at the Cato Institute website. Again, School Choice Myths. And then also, if you want to help uh, me in the fight to push for educational freedom all across the country, in Idaho and elsewhere, you can go to the Education Freedom Pledge. And you can find that at educationfreedompledge.com, or for short, you can just type in edfreedompledge.com, and you can sign up. Whenever a bill is moving through the, your legislature and in, in whatever state that you're in, we we uh, will we'll notify you about it. And um, yeah, and, and you you could help us push for these uh, initiatives in in your state.
0: Well, thank you, Corey, for being here today. We, it's good that we could get in a forum where we have about a half hour cause you get to go a little bit deeper. You get a little bit more uh, detail and I love the research basis of what you're doing. You're, you're saying these are studies. This is research. This is uh, data that we're pulling in because what we at upstream want to do is partner with organizations like yours and what you're doing. That says basically that what we can do is we can find data. We can find research, scientific studies that say, this is what is best for children. Why aren't we doing this? So I want to say thank you for your research. Thank you for spearheading this movement. And our hope is that it will continue to grow and that your efforts will bring about tremendous momentum and change for the future.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me.